Okay, I don't know how many of you graduated with me from high school. I don't really recognize many of you as graduating with me. Maybe a few. Um, Coronado High School, class of 1978, Lubbock, Texas. Okay, well, that's not really Coronado High School in Lubbock, Texas. That's Lubbock High School, because it's a lot prettier. <clears throat> that's Coronado High School. <laughs> sort of see the difference and why I picked one over the other, don't you? Yeah, that was mine. Uh, but uh, here, that kind of spiffs it up a little bit. Coronado High School. See, I graduated in 1978, as in 30 years ago. As in, CHS is having its 30-year high school reunion this summer. It's a pretty big-time thing. Taking Becky back, going to show off. <laughs> She's class of 1980. Coronado High School, so uh, she'll know a lot of the people there. We're pretty excited about it. And I thought about it this morning, uh, uh, actually this morning, I thought about it when I wrote this lesson, you'll find this is the introduction there, but I also thought about it this morning because Pastor Fleming and I uh, uh, seem to fit like a hand in glove today. So if you've already been to worship and heard Pastor David's sermon, uh, you're, you're warmed up for today. You've got no excuses to walk out of here without a, a good uh, appreciation for reunions at least. Paul was reunion-minded to some degree. Paul longed for his reunion with the Thessalonican church itself. That was a good reunion. That was something he was looking forward to. Paul had been pulled apart from that church. And he really wanted to get back and he wanted to see him. He wanted to spend some time with him. He wanted to talk to him. But more than that, Paul recognized that there was going to come a day where we'd have our reunion with Jesus. And Paul had talked about the second coming and taught it to the Thessalonican church, even though Paul had been there very briefly. Within a matter of maybe as little as a month, Paul and Thessalonica had already taught the new Christians that he, he was uh, involved with about the second coming of Jesus and how Jesus would come again. So th with this reunion idea in mind, I want us to look at Thessalonians. We're going to look at the first book we call First Thessalonians. Now, I told you last week, it's called First Thessalonians because it's the first one when they put Paul's body of writings together, they seem to have grouped his writings to the churches in terms of the longest books to the shortest ones. Then afterwards they put his writings to individuals in the same way. But because of that, we don't know if 1 Thessalonians was written first or second in time. We call it 1 Thessalonians because it's the first Thessalonian letter in our New Testament body of material in the way it's ordered now. Next week we'll talk about, as we look at 2 Thessalonians, why it is, maybe 2 Thessalonians was written first. But regardless, Paul wrote both of them at Corinth. And so we're pausing in Paul's missionary journey. We studied Paul in Corinth last week. This week what we want to do is we want to look at the letter that we call 1 Thessalonians. One brief moment of review. Remember, Thessalonica was a major city. 
That's where Paul had uh, uh, been on his journey. Now that red line we've got is called the Via Ignatia. Actually in Latin it would be a Via Ignatia. But uh, that is, Via means road. If you're going to go via something, you're, that's the road you're going to use. Ignatia is the name of the fellow who designed the road a couple of hundred years before Paul. It was a road that stretched across the northern part of Macedonia from Dyrrhachium through Thessaloniki over to Byzantium, modern-day Istanbul area. You with me? It was a major road. It was the major thoroughfare that moved all products across the northern part of Greece and Macedonia. If you look at Thessalonica, or Thessaloniki as they would call it, if you look at it, you'll see it was also a port town. So you've got a major city that's a, 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 a port that's got the major highway, and all of that right concentrated in the dead center is Thessaloniki. Thessaloniki is a major town. Major town because of the road, major because of the port. Point one. Point two that you need to remember as we look at the Thessalonican letter. Thessalonica was home to many forms of worship. Very interesting aspects of worship there. Two that I want to underscore for us as we look at Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. The first is the Kabiris cult. The Kabiris cult, we know about it because Kabiris is found on a lot of coins in that area from Thessaloniki, from Thessalonica, okay? Kabiris was a young man who supposedly was going to be the savior for that area. But his brothers killed him while he was still young. The myth went that Kabiris would come back one day from the dead to save the town. His, his face is on the coin along with a hammer because he was a builder. That cult was the official city worship cult at the time Paul comes. Tell me God had not paved the way for these people to learn of Jesus. There was a second form of worship there that was the imperial cult. The imperial cult worshipped Caesar. Caesar was considered God walking on the earth. And so God, Caesar, the emperor, was worshipped in Thessaloniki. Thessaloniki especially did it because Thessaloniki was a, a, uh, a, a, an independent town. It had been given an independent status by Rome. Because Mark Antony, uh, the town sided with Mark Antony in the fight with Cassius and Brutus after the death of Caesar. Mark Antony and Octavius go, town sides with Mark Antony, Octavius, who won, I might add, and as a result, granted independent status. So you've got an independent city who always wants to keep Rome happy so they stay independent. You don't want to bite the hand that feeds you, right? So you've got an independent city that wants to stay independent, so they worship the Kabiris cult, but they also worship the emperor, the emperor of Rome. He's God, God on earth. This is where Paul comes and where Paul had his evangelistic outreach in Thessaloniki. When Paul comes, we don't know how long he stayed there, but we know he preached for three consecutive Sabbaths in the synagogue. 
In the synagogue, you're going to have the Jews. You're also going to have the God-fearers. Those are the Greeks who are kind of fed up with all of the pagan rituals and all of the pagan gods. So they start liking the fact that the Jews have one God. They like the fact that the Jews have a good morality and a good ethic around them. They also like the fact that the Jews don't do sacrifices. Because remember, Jewish sacrifices are only done at the temple back in Jerusalem. Now, they don't want to become Jewish because they're grossed out by the concept of circumcision and other things like that. But they like the Jewish religion enough to be showing up at synagogue. So when these people hear Paul teach, it's not just Jews who come to know Jesus, but a lot of the God-fearers, a lot of these Greeks, they come to know Jesus as well. In fact, enough that the Jews get upset. Because you see, the church in, in Thessaloniki, it grows. And it grows quickly. And so the Jews want something done. The Jews go to arrest Paul. You'll recall they go to Jason's house where they think Paul is. And Jason says, he's not here. And they said, well, then you'll do. And they haul Jason over to court and said, look, he's teaching, he's with this guy who's teaching a new form of worship. They're not worshiping the emperor. We're going to lose our independent status as a city because a lot of people are flocking to it. They're not worshiping Kabiris, which is one of the accepted alternatives. Judaism, by the way, had been accepted as an alternative by the emperor of Rome also. These guys have this brand new thing. So Jason's arrested and Jason's told if you'll post bond and agree to get Paul out of here, then uh, we'll let you go. Jason post bond and Paul has to leave. He's expelled with very little notice. <laughs> it's going to get worse before it gets better. I've got... <laughs> Several slides this time. I was a bit giddy when I did. Um, Paul was expelled with very little notice. He was thrown out. Now, why is that important? I've got to leave town this Wednesday. I've got to go up to uh, Ohio and then from there over to Philadelphia, and I'll be back Friday. And I know I'm going Wednesday. So before I go, do you know what I'll do? I'll spend time with Becky. I'll spend time with my kids. I'll make sure I've got all my work done that needs to be done. I don't want to leave something on my desk that's untended to. I'll return phone calls. I'll make sure mom knows I love her and my grandmother knows I love her. And I'll try and tend to those things before I leave, right? Okay. Paul doesn't have time to do that. Paul's kicked out with very little notice and he doesn't have time to sew up the loose ends. So you're not surprised to find out Paul's, all, Paul's instantly sending Timothy back. Timothy didn't get booted out. Timothy could come and go. So he's, Paul's sending Timothy back to check on things. And, and Paul's finding that some unresolved issues are cropping up. <clears throat> they cropped up. Especially the second coming and its implications. Paul evidently had not had a chance to preach as thorough a sermon as David did this morning. Paul let them know there was going to be a second coming. He let them know Jesus is coming back. If there's not a second coming, we, who are we to be wasting our time 
If Jesus does not come back to take us to himself and to take us to his, the Father, who are we to be wasting our time? See, Jesus has already prepared the rooms. The passage that David preached on this morning, the John 14, Jesus says, I go now to prepare a place for you so that where I am there you may be also. Jesus isn't saying he's going to heaven with a hammer to knock out these rooms and do some remodeling. If you ask an ordinary Christian today, where's Jesus today? That's often the answer you'll get. Well, he's in heaven preparing a place. No, 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 no. When Jesus says, I go now to prepare a place for you, he meant he's going to the cross. That's how he prepared. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. The rooms are already there. But there's no way for us to get there unless he goes to the cross to prepare a place for us. That's, how, that's the preparation for us. That's why the only way to go there is in Jesus. He is the way. There is no other way to the rooms in heaven than through the cross. No other way. Any other way, you're taking your sins. And they're not allowed in those rooms. Only through the cross where you can leave your sins. But that means Jesus is not only gone, but he, Jesus comes back to take us. And Paul had preached that, but he had, some, had not had a chance to tie up the loose ends. He thought he had maybe a six-week series, and he didn't know he was going to quit after three. And so the folks didn't fully understand because somebody had passed away, maybe several people. And the thought in the Thessalonican mind had been, oh, no, they're going to miss the reunion. When Jesus comes back to get us, they're already dead. See, the Greeks didn't have the same concept of the afterlife we do. Their, their concepts were all across the board. You can find people who believed all sorts of different things. But in these folks' mind, they were, the, the deceased were not going to be there when Jesus came back. So Paul sits down and Paul says, I need to write the Thessalonians about this stuff. I need to tie up some loose ends. And when Paul wrote the Thessalonians, he did so with this principle in mind. I think Paul expected someone to stand up and read his letter. I think Paul expected someone to stand up and start with chapter 1, verse 1, though he didn't have those labeling systems. And read to the very end of chapter 5. Now that's not to say that Paul didn't think people would take it and pour over it. And look at it and try and examine and understand and, and discuss what different passages meant. But Paul wrote it to be read in a setting as well. One setting as well. So what I'd like to do this morning is in one setting. Go through 1 Thessalonians. Because you get something in the flow of it that you miss when you just concentrate on where it bubbles up in various studies. You with me? Now, when Paul wrote it, Paul wrote to a people who were not that good with PowerPoint. <laughs> they're, they're, the microphones were really primitive. Um, the, the whole atmosphere would have been very different. And he wrote to people who were not accustomed to the electronic medium that we're accustomed to. We're used to watching TV. 
We're used to looking at the computer. We're used to things that, to be candid, have changed the way we pay attention and the way we process information. They were used to listening. That's the way they processed. So if I stood up here and just read you First Thessalonians, I'm not sure but that you might not catch that Sunday afternoon nap a little early. That's not to say Paul was a boring writer. He wasn't. That is to say that we're different kinds of listeners. So if Brother Paul, and, and God might excuse me, what I'm going to do is teach you, read you, if you will, First Thessalonians. But I'm going to do it in 21st century speak, 21st century style, with Mark Lanier filtered into it. Okay, so that, that means this is not inspired. <laughs> we've, we've left the, the, the God-breathed inspiration, but it's, it's inspired in the sense of, of go back to the source, okay? I, I'm not trying to supplant what Paul did. This is not a new version now, the, the audiovisual version of the Bible, not at all. I just want us to get the flow of it. And I want it to be in a way that, that you sort of feel like you're digesting what Paul wrote about. You with me? So with that, let's look at 1 Thessalonians. Paul starts the letter out identifying who he is. And he says, I'm writing to you. And I want to let you know, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you, for your needs. I'm praying for what goes on in your life. I want your life happy. But when I pray, I also pray with thanksgiving. I'm thankful. I'm thankful for you. I pray with thanksgiving for you. Let me tell you why. I pray with thankfulness because I see your work. And the work that I see in you is work that was produced by your faith. I'm thankful to God because I see the labor. You know about labor. I see the labor. She just had a baby. I see the things you're working on that aren't easy, that are laborious. And I know that that labor is produced by your love. And I'm thankful for you when I pray about you. I'm thankful for you because I know how you just stay in there and you stick with it and you don't give up. And you're a steadfast. And the reason why is because you know Jesus Christ and have confidence that he is going to come again for you. And I thank God for that with you. See, when I came to you, when I, when I preached to you, there was no question. It wasn't a question of you picked God. God picked you. God picked you. And you know how I know that? Because when I talked to you and you listened, it wasn't just, oh, yeah, I hear you. When you listened, you listened and there was conviction. There was power. There was the Holy Spirit. And that tells me that God had his hand in picking you. That God chose you. Oh, it's been fantastic. Thessalonica, big city. I know who you are. You're that thoroughfare. You're the crossroad between the highway and the harbor. You're there. But do you know what's happened? Word's gotten out. 
not surprising, is it, with them being in the highway of life? Words gotten out about you and your faith and what you're doing. Word is just reverberating out. They're even hearing about it down here in Greece. And the word that's gone out is this. Your reputation, because you've turned from worshiping idols and serving idols, you've turned from worshiping idols to worshiping the true and living God. You're not worshiping the Kebrus cult anymore. You're not worshiping the imperial cult anymore. You're worshiping the true God. See, Kebrus, Kebrus was a, a myth. And for all the nice things you can say about the emperor of Rome, who truly was, I guess, alive, he wasn't living in the sense of our living God. He was a living man. But you are worshiping the true and the living God. And that's the reputation. And it's been fantastic because Jesus is a true Savior and he is going to come back and he is going to rescue us from the wrath to come. He is. And that just makes me really happy. What a reputation you've got. You know, when, when I came, if I'm Paul, when I came to see you, I, I'd had a tough time in Philippi. I came to see you, but my visit with you was incredibly valuable. Brief, yes. Persecution, yes. But incredibly valuable. Do you know why? Oh, because I flattered you? No, no, it's not because I flattered you. Do you think the visit was valuable because I was raking in the dough? Oh yeah, Paul's got to be happy. He made some bucks off us. No, I worked myself to death so I didn't take your money. The reason my visit was valuable to you, because you made me feel real good and I got a big ego and I want your praise. No, I don't want your praise, I don't need your praise. The reason my visit to you is valuable is because we were having some fun. Good times. No. The reason my visit to you is valuable is because I got to share the best news there could ever be. I got to tell you about Jesus, your Savior. That's the reason it was valuable. See... As I talked to you about Jesus, your Savior, and I shared with you what he did, you understood something. You understood that it might be me talking, just like it's me writing. But there's more to it than that. I wasn't bringing you Paul's gospel. See, behind my message was God. And you understood that. Now, since I've left... I've, I've been I've been wondering what's going on, you know. I've sent Timothy. I've I've tried to keep up with you. I, I I wanted to come myself, but I can't. But I just keep asking myself. I wonder how they're doing. I'd like I'd like some detail. I'd like some report. I wonder how they're standing up to Satan right now because I know he's coming after him. You can't love the Lord and have Satan as your friend. You can't be on God's side and have Satan feel really good about it. 
He's going to come after you. And I know that. It's a fact. And I just wonder how you're holding up. So I got to tell you, I continue to pray for you. Do you know what else I pray about? I pray, you know, you've got love. I saw your love. I experienced your love. But I pray that your love and holiness is going to grow more and more and more. Not just your love, understand. I want your holiness to grow. I want you to perceive that you live to please God. I don't want you living for sexual immorality. I don't want lusts and, 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 and just your base human nature to dictate what you do and who you are. You're above that. I don't want you tied down to internet pornography. I don't want you tied down to food addiction. I don't want you tied down to a drive and lust for money. I don't want you tied down to anything base. I want your life to be one where you live to please God Almighty. So that when you walk in front of all the unbelievers, you walk in a way that, that, that's very careful and a good example. Oh, sorry. You walk in a way that's very careful and a good example. Walk carefully in front of the unbelievers. What you do with your time, you know, I think some of you got carried away by the teaching of the second coming. And have just decided, hey, Jesus is coming back any day now. I don't have to do anything anymore. <laughs> I'm not showing up at work on Monday. I mean, I might not have enough to make it quite till he gets here, but I'll be pretty close. It might be beans and rice the last couple of days. But why? <laughs> it's kind of like eat the dessert first. Okay. That, you know, if you're really thinking it. So he says, uh, but that's not the holy life. The holy life is one where you're just going to live quietly. You're going to mind your own affairs. You're going to work with your hands. You're going to do what you need to do. Because you see, the Lord is coming back. But let me tell you about the second coming. Do you know when it's going to happen? Do you? Well, let me tell you what you do know. You know it's coming, and you don't have to worry, by the way, about those who died. Let's get that out of the way. Don't worry about those who died, because what's going to happen when Jesus comes again, the dead, they get with him before we do. The dead in Christ shall rise first, then we'll go with them to meet with them in the sky. The trump will resound, the Lord will descend on clouds. We'll meet with them in the sky, and it's an encouraging thing. I, if you were in worship this morning, I was sitting back, and I was just thanking God for David Fleming. Now, that's probably not what David wants. He wants us thanking God for God. But I was sitting there thinking, you know, I'm going to stand up in class and say, Paul told us to encourage one another with the assurance that Jesus is coming back. And that we'll meet up with him in the clouds. And that's what Paul says here. Would you encourage one another with that? And I thought, 
as I was preparing this lesson, I thought, you know, I got to be real careful because that's not the kind of thing we hear a lot in church. And I don't want to like say something, you know, let's do this if it's something we don't do. But boy, isn't our pastor dead on in scripture? Wasn't that encouraging when he told us about that? As he stood up there and talked about, I mean, I was just ready to stand up and start belting out, when we all get to heaven, you know, face to face with Christ my Savior. I mean, it's just, it, it was so moving and so encouraging. And Paul says, don't worry about those who are dead. That's who you're going to have your reunion with. Along with each other. And you want to know when? Tick, 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 tick. You want to know? Well, it's going to be when nobody's expecting it. Like a thief in the night. But I will tell you this, he said. Because we know that Jesus is coming back. And because we know it's like a thief in the night. Because we know it's when nobody's expecting it. Then we're going to live in confidence waiting for it. We will be ready. We don't know when, but we know how to prepare and we will be prepared. So it's not anything to worry about. It's not anything to get worked up and nervous over. It's something to live in ex excitement over. It's something that encourages one another. And let's encourage one another with these words. We will always be with the Lord. And that's comforting and that's encouraging. Not just us, but those who have passed away. Now, I want to tell you just a couple of things before I go. Word here about the church. Um, you need to respect your overseers, your pastors, your, your elders, your presbyteros, your deacons. You need to respect those who are trying their hardest to lead you. Not because they're perfect, but because they're trying hard. And God's put them there to do it. Respect them. It's okay to go home after Sunday and say, you know what I liked about Fleming's sermon? You know what I didn't like as much? But when we do that, let's always be careful that we're doing it respectfully. Especially if our children are listening. The odds that we know more than him on what he's preaching about are slim. But that doesn't make him right all the time. It's okay to sit there. And he would want us to sit there and assess what he says by the word of God. But don't just write it off. Hey, terrible. Can't believe the way he walks around on the stage. Of course, you're probably sitting out there saying, class was terrible. Can't believe the way Lanier's leaning back on the stage. It's not easy to do what he does. It's not easy to do what Stephen Trammell does. It's not easy to do what Louis Miori does. I'm close enough friends with these guys to tell you, I wouldn't take their job. Can you imagine being pastor of a church where everyone you meet is in some sense, in their own mind at least, your boss? When that's really not the way God has it. Their boss is God. They work for God. They minister to us. Because God's called them to serve us. But they don't report to us. 
So let's respect your overseers. Not only that, rejoice. Oh, you may be getting arrested. You may be getting in trouble. You may be all sorts of things. That's okay. Rejoice. We're going to heaven. Pray nonstop. Don't stop praying. What does that mean? Uh, don't talk to me now. I'm having a prayer. No, that means everything you do, your mind is consciously aware that your father is hearing everything you say. And everything you do, you do in relation to him. Every conversation you have, that voice in the back of your head is still tuned in to God. You never hang up the phone on him. I'm speed dial number five on Lewis's phone. And it's his Blackberry so that it can get punched. He calls me at times he has no idea he calls me. <laughs> Do you know how I know? Because my phone rings. It says Lulu, which is how he's <laughs> labeled on my phone. So I know Lulu's calling and I click the green button because I don't want to screen his call, generally. I say, hello? And I don't hear anything responsive back to me. I just hear his conversations with Michelle. <laughs> I'll listen, realizing I'm not supposed to be listening in, so I cut it off after five or ten minutes. <laughs> and then I'll generally send him a text saying, why are you calling me? So that he'll know. But with God, pray continually means don't ever hang up. Let Him hear everything that you've got going on. Keep the green button on. Don't hit the red button and say, time out, God, I'm going to get into some stuff. This is not going to be pretty. I'll, I'll talk to you again when it's over. I'm not sure you can handle this. And always be thankful. Now, Paul closes his letter. With a blessing. And he pronounces a blessing from the Lord on the people. That read it. And he tells them, go read my letter. And keep reading it in church. Which is what, in a sense, we've done today. Brother Paul, we've followed your request. But I love the fact that Paul closes and says, would you pray for me? I'm praying for you. Would you pray for me? Would you all pray for me, please? I pray for this class. I do. This class is something that is present in the minds of my family seven days a week. Because we do not walk in here and extemporaneously deliver a class. Oh, if there were three or four people in this class, I'd probably come closer to doing that. But when you've got as many people as we have, and you've got an internet full that are reading and listening... There's an acute awareness of how much valuable time that's here. And there are a lot of you I know that don't want to go to class every Sunday. But you come here. And I'm touched by that. And if I can do anything for you, it's to try and diligently study scripture to present to you a lesson. If you're going to give me 45 minutes of your valuable time to listen to what I have to say. How dare I ever come in here and not try and give you something back? And I tell you that to say, I'm very thankful to each one of you who are in here. It touches me that you come to this class. 
Because I know it's not easy. And I know there are a lot of competing things for your time. Especially as we're into like lawn mowing season. Of course, it's not like we're going to be watching the Rockets anymore for a while. But there's still other stuff. And I'm touched that you're here. And I do pray for you. And I pray for this class. I pray for a lot of you by name. I pray for a lot of you by face because I'm not very good at names. I'll remember Carolyn, though. Visit her right here. Pray for her. She said, I don't want to sit on the front row. Linda said, oh, don't worry about it. He won't point you out. Here are our points for home. God's word. A lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Points for home. Paul says, I love your works produced by faith. I love your labors produced by love. Chapter 1, verse 3. What's he mean? Why do I pick that out as a point for home? I'll tell you why. One thing we're going to see when we study Paul's theology is Paul, in some ways, his theology seems to become more fully understood by him, or at least more fully expressed. But the core of his theology and gospel, it never changed. It was not his gospel, it was God's. And we'll read in Ephesians how he'll talk about, by grace you've been saved through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast, but where his workmanship created in Christ for the purpose of good works that he prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. And that's in a late letter of Paul's, but I got to tell you, in what's the first or second letter he wrote, depending on when you place Galatians, and we've already studied it, he's already talking about the works that he's thankful for are the ones that are produced by faith. He doesn't give a rip about the works themselves. Just having works, that's nothing. In fact, that can be a trap. It's the works produced by faith, not the works produced by duress. Well, i got to do this or I'm going to go to hell. The labor's produced by love. And by the way, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. See, it's, the, it's what Jesus said about the tree and the fruit. It's a question of what kind of tree do you have? If you've got a living, vibrant faith in the Lord Jesus, you're going to show fruit. It's going to show with works and labors of love. If you don't have works and labors of love, you got a dead tree. And that's the biggest reason to be concerned in the world. Not because, oh gee, there's not gonna, there's gonna be a shortage of fruit. No. The reason is, it's a dead tree. You can tell that, you, I, I got a dead tree in my yard. It's an olive tree we planted. Dead. It's got me really ticked off too. Now, I could go to the store and I could buy a jar of olives and I could take the time to tape them on that tree. <laughs> and that tree would have fruit. But it wouldn't be fruit produced by the tree. You can have all the works in the world you want to please God, but if they're not works that come from faith, they're useless because it's the faith, it's the tree. What kind of tree do you have? You can tell by looking at your works. You can tell how hot it is by looking at the thermometer. But it isn't the thermometer that makes it hot. If you don't have works, 
I pray for you. And I'd like to talk to you after class. Not because I want to see you working. It's because there's something wrong with the tree. Because a tree of faith produces works. Next point. Paul says, turn from, to God from idols. Serve the living and true God. Now, how many of you have been caught up in the Cabarrus cult? Okay, just a few. The imperial cult? Hail Caesar? No, not the salad. Okay. I'm looking that we're pretty clean there. So I guess in America, we do not have a problem with idols. See, the worship here, let's break apart that word worship. It means to ascribe worth. What are you valuing in your life? What are you valuing in your life? If you're putting your value on things other than God, you've got your own idolatry. And so do I. If there's anything in your life that trumps doing right before God, yeah, I know I should do this, but I'd rather do that, and I'm going to follow my rather than my should. I'm not saying there aren't times where we're fallen people and, and sin will overcome, but focus on it. And ask yourself, how high up am I really valuing God? Am I into fashion more than I am God? Am I more concerned that my purse not be a knockoff but be the original? Am I more concerned about the kind of car I drive and the impression it has on my neighbors? Am I more concerned about how important I look to other people at work as opposed to being genuine and real? What is it in your life? Because we're to turn aside. There is a true and living God who is coming back. And that's the only one worth worshiping because nothing else has that worth. He alone is worth thee. Final point from home. Paul says, I wanted to come to you. I'm into the reunion thing. I wanted to come to you and I'm looking forward to the reunion with the Lord in the sky. And by the way, when we get to Paul's theology, I threw this into the written lesson. It's really interesting. Paul's description of the second coming in 1 Thessalonians, compare it in columns to what Jesus says in Matthew 24. And it's like Paul was there. Of course, maybe it's the same God behind him. I mean, Paul's dead on with the way Jesus says it. Dead on in area after area. And we'll cover that when we start dealing with those issues. But Paul says the second coming is important. It's important even in this world that I come to you. Because reunions are incredible when they're for eternity with the Lord. Abraham was gathered to his fathers. I'm looking forward to seeing dad, granddaddy. I'm looking forward to being gathered to my family and my loved ones and my friends. Would you pray with me? Lord, it's our prayer this morning in the name of Jesus that you would reach down and continue to stoke the fires of our faith. That you would reach down and continue to strip away any adoration we give to things other than you and what you've put in our lives. 
that we would take time to contemplate the wonderful confidence we have of eternity with you and how that truly does put everything else into a different perspective. Would you bless my friends, my family here, please? In Jesus' name, bless them. Bless their health. Bless their minds. Bless their hearts, their emotions, their spirits. Bless their relationships. But most especially, Lord, draw them closer to you. Through Jesus we pray, amen.